0: Main Street
1: This audio tour starts at 25 Main Street North, Bayfield, Ontario. This is the heart of Bayfield. It's charming downtown. When you get there, start the tour.
0: On November 24, 1882, Loyal Orange Order No. 24 was hosting the Feast of St. Andrew's Oyster Supper in Orange Hall on the second floor of this building. While the Orangemen enjoyed good cheer, their bright lights attracted the attention of the schooner, Malta, which was locked in a life and death struggle against a raging blizzard on Lake Huron. Despite the lateness of the sailing season, the Malta was on a run from Port Huron to Godridge for one last load of salt. After several hours, the Malta had made little headway against high Northwest winds and huge waves. Through the darkness, Captain Henry Buckley saw light on the shore. Believing it to be the Godridge Lighthouse, Captain Buckley ordered his crew to sail towards it. The light that Captain Buckley saw was that of the orange celebration at Barker Hall. Realizing his mistake too late, Captain Buckley ran the Malta hard between two rocks off Signal Point, one quarter mile south of the Bayfield River mouth. The Malta was wedged upright between the rocks but was too far from shore for the crew to reach safety. A messenger stormed into the hall and announced that a wrecked ship was in distress offshore. Among the orange men were a good part of the Bayfield fishing fleet. Within minutes, seasoned all-weather fishermen bundled themselves up and ran out into the pitch darkness to lend a hand, bent almost double to make their way against the wind. The force of the gale had torn the Malta's sails from her bolt ropes. Shreds of her canvas were found in the morning as far as the schoolyard, almost a mile away. By the light of an oil lamp, the men on the shore were able to catch a light line from the Malta. They were then able to drag the line ashore and lash it to a heavier line. One end of the heavy line was then tied around a tree trunk. While the other end was hauled back to the Malta, the rope was pulled taut between the ship and the tree. Despite the storm's fury, all 10 crew members, nine men and one woman, plus a parrot, traversed the line and made it safely ashore. For a few days before heading home, the Malta's crew stayed at the commercial hotel, now the little inn just across the street. Superstitious seamen believe every ship has a will of her own. The Malta stubbornly refused to budge from her spot. In December 1882, Godridge merchant C.C. Lee purchased the wreck for $500. Whatever attempt, if any, Lee made to move the Malta is unknown but the ship remained wedged in the rocks for decades and became a part of village life. The Malta's oak timbers and furnishings were salvaged by locals. Cutlery and plates from the ship appeared in local homes. The Malta's pine spars were made into fishing boxes, and her masts were milled into roofing shingles for fishermen's cabins. The Malta's cabin was used as a change room for swimmers. The ship's hull served as a break wall, which prevented erosion of the cliff. Even after the ship was dislodged from the lake floor in 1952, the Malta was reluctant to leave Bayfield as her hulk washed up on the beach. The ship broke in half and slipped back into the lake the following year. In 1974, the ship's rudder was found still wedged between the two rocks that she grounded upon 92 years earlier.
1: Now cross the street to the northwest to reach the Bayfield Historical Society and Archives at 20 Main Street North.
0: Dedicated to preserving Bayfield's heritage, the Historical Society assisted with these audio tours. In front of the archives sits a 300-pound anchor, which fouled the fishing nets of Bob McGraw a few kilometers offshore in 1974. McGraw brought the anchor ashore in his boat, the Bonnie Ann. The anchor is over 150 years old. The Bayfield Historical Society is also the custodian of the Royal Red Cross Medal of World War I nurse Maud Sterling. Annie Maud Sterling was born November 10, 1877. She was one of 14 children born to William and Rebecca Sterling, a farming family on what is now Orchard Line. Maud received her early education at Porter's Hill and later attended Godridge District Collegiate Institute. She graduated from the Goddard Model School for teacher training in 1895 and taught in local elementary schools for six years. In 1901, she enrolled in the nurses' training program in Toronto and lived there until after the outbreak of the war. On April 7, 1915, at age 37, Sterling began a short course of military training before embarking at Montreal, with No. 4 Canadian General Service Hospital heading to Thessaloniki, Greece. They were tasked with providing medical support to British forces shoring up Serbian resistance to Bulgaria, a German ally. This was coincidentally the same hospital where a young Lester B. Pearson, future Prime Minister of Canada, spent the war as a stretcher-bearer. By late November, Number 4 Canadian General Hospital became operational with over 1,000 beds. Nursing sister Sterling was in the first wave of Canadian nurses to serve in the Mediterranean. Living conditions were nearly unbearable. Nurses had to wash their hair in a kerosene shampoo to rid them of lice. Two-thirds of number four hospital caught malaria, and 95 percent developed acute enteritis. In her diary, Sterling described a bedbug hunt where she went over her canvas cot with coal oil. She wrote of another nurse who the vermin were turning into a nervous wreck. She concluded her diary entry with, I am truly disgusted. Amazingly, Sterling noted in her diary that some of the men in her ward who had not slept in a bed for months thought conditions were all right. On January 7, 1916, Sterling noted in her diary that she had a most exciting morning as German aircraft bombed her hospital. One anti-aircraft shell burst over her mess tent and fragments burned a hole in their table chart board. Sterling had air raid dugouts that she could turn to, but hated the thought of leaving her patients and running to save herself. Sterling served with the hospital until it was withdrawn to England in 1917 for rest and to be refitted after nearly two years in the field. Sterling was sent on a special course to learn about the pioneer science of massage therapy to restore muscle movement in damaged limbs. After receiving her training, Sterling provided massage therapy to injured soldiers. Later, she would be considered Canada's first massage therapist. On January 30th, 1918, Sterling was awarded the Royal Red Cross by King George V at Buckingham Palace. After three years overseas service, Sterling returned home to Bayfield on December 4, 1918. The Bayfield War Auxiliary and Women's Patriotic Society gave her a rousing welcome at the Bayfield Town Hall. After the war, Sterling held positions as matron-in-chief at hospitals in Burlington, Portsmouth, St. Agatha, Owen Sound, and St. Andrews College. She retired in Bayfield in the early 1930s to look after her elderly mother. During the Second World War, Sterling was the president of the Bayfield Red Cross and gave massage lessons to Red Cross nursing classes. After that war, Sterling lived near Clan Gregor Square, and the village children visited her house to have their cuts and scrapes tended to and to receive cookies. Sterling died in Bayfield at the age of 87 on July 20, 1964. In November 2018, following the Remembrance Day ceremony held at the Bayfield Cenotaph in Clan Gregor Square, members of Sterling's family presented her Royal Red Cross Medal to the Bayfield Historical Society with hopes that her life story would be cherished and remembered.
1: To continue the tour, cross the street and walk southeast for two minutes to reach the Albion Hotel at 1 Main Street.
0: The Albion has offered accommodations for over 150 years. In the early 1840s, Bayfield was still a forested wilderness for the most part, though farmers had cleared some land for their crops and log cabins. On this site, Robert Reed constructed a one-story building as a general store. After 15 years of operation, Reed added a second story and the Albion Hotel was born. By the late 1890s, Bayfield was attracting visitors from across Canada and the United States. The Albion was a popular spot for food, drink, and accommodations. By 1902, both levels of the front porch were completed, and the two-tiered veranda became a signature architectural feature of the building. The hotel is filled with antiques, and the original cherry wood bar is still in use. In November 1897, at about 8.30 p.m., Louis Dumart, Albert Woods and Harvey Elliott rode into town from Varna. They had already been drinking when they entered the Albion Hotel, owned by Elliott's mother. Fred Elliott joined his brother and his companions in singing and dancing in the barroom. Witnesses later testified at the inquest and trial that there was no evident animosity between the brothers at that time. Just before closing time at 10 p.m., Fred Elliott handed his sister Lily the evening's receipts so she could lock up the bar for the night. Woods and Dumart had gone across the street to King's General Store to buy some cheese and biscuits for lunch the next day, when they heard a commotion across the street at the Albion. Fred Elliott, 21, and Harvey Elliott, 23, were involved in a loud scuffle, shouting profanities at each other on the hotel's veranda. Harvey ordered his brother to go into the house. Fred refused and attacked his larger and much stronger brother. Woods later testified that he ran over and grabbed hold of Harvey's waist with his arms to pull him away from Fred. Lily and her mother pulled Fred away from Harvey and back into the house. Woods said once the brothers were separated by about 12 feet, Harvey broke away from Woods, threw off his coat, and moved towards Fred in a threatening manner. Fred raised a revolver he had in his right hand and said, Keep him away from me or I'll shoot. Harvey leaned forward and rushed at Fred saying, "'Here's somebody who's not afraid of being shot.'" As the brothers closed on one another, Fred fired one shot, which struck Harvey in the upper chest, plunging through his body, severing an aortic artery and lodging in his back. Harvey collapsed onto the gravel with blood spurting from his mouth. Woods dragged his mortally wounded friend to a nearby water pump to clean the wound. It was a vain attempt because Harvey Elliott was dead within two minutes. Several bystanders helped Woods carry Harvey's body into the Albion samples room where he was laid out on a stretcher until the inquest the following day. The shot was fired at such close range that the strong smell of gunpowder clung to Harvey's sweater. The enormity of his deed immediately dawned on Fred, who dropped the pistol and shouted, My God, I've shot my brother! Someone shoot me! Fred tried to grab the pistol to end his life, but his quick thinking mother had already picked it up. Frank Keegan heard the shot and ran into the Albion where he saw Harvey's corpse. He then went behind the building where he found a distraught Fred Elliott who said, Oh, Frank, I shot him. Fred was taken into custody. For Maria Elliott, the mother of Fred and Harvey, it was yet another unbearable disaster. A year earlier, her husband Edward died of a heart attack while milking a cow. Another son died as a result of a swimming accident a few years before. The heartbroken woman had now watched one son shoot down and kill another. The local papers called it the Bayfield Tragedy. The root cause of the deadly argument may have been the brothers' rivalry for the affections of Miss Margaret Maggie Davidson. Maggie was a server at the Albion. She had dated Harvey for two years, then started dating the younger brother, Fred. The inquest held the next day determined that Harvey Elliott came to his death by a bullet fired from a revolver in the hands of his brother, Frederick Elliott. Fred was released on $3,000 bail to await trial in December. Despite the horror of the crime, there was a lot of sympathy for the surviving members of the Elliott family. The family were viewed as hardworking and respectable. At the trial in the Godridge Courthouse in December, Fred Elliott pleaded not guilty to manslaughter. Defense lawyer William Proudfoot argued that Fred acted in self-defense and contended that the revolver fired when Harvey knocked it with his fist. Yet, not a single witness could positively verify that Harvey caused the gun to fire by knocking Fred's arm. In less than two hours, in a deathly silent but crowded courtroom, the jury found Fred Elliott guilty of manslaughter but added a strong recommendation for mercy. Judge James Masson considered the jury's recommendation and expressed sympathy for the accused and his mother, but said the taking of a human life required a sentence to deter other evildoers. His lordship sentenced Elliot to five years' hard labor in the Kingston Penitentiary. Almost immediately, efforts to have Fred Elliot released early were underway. A large petition for a commutation or shortening of Elliot's sentence was presented to the Minister of Justice in March 1898. Yet, it was not until July 1901 that Elliot was granted parole. Unfortunately, Elliot's health was broken by prison life. He returned home and continued to work at the Albion until his death by cardiac failure on September 13, 1905, at age 30. He was buried in the Bayfield Cemetery next to the brother he had killed eight years earlier.
1: This concludes the Bayfield Main Street Tour. To learn more about Bayfield's history, Take the Clan Greger Square or Pioneer Park audio tours.